Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Leo. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjus Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. Today, we are uh, have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Roy Herbst, the lead investigator for the ADORA trial. Uh, Dr. Herbst is the Ensign Professor of Medicine and Professor of Pharmacology at Yale School of Medicine. He is the Deputy Director of Yale Cancer Center, uh, the Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital, the Assistant Dean for Translational Research at Yale School of Medicine. Roy, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thanks. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. We are delighted to have you here. Uh, Today, we'll be discussing the ADORA trial. First presented at ASCO 2020, ADORA introduced targeted therapy in the adjuvant setting for early stage EGFR-positive non-small-cell lung cancer. While we have seen targeted therapy in this space, ADORA showed disease-free survival rates never seen before and changed the treatment of early-stage lung cancer. Roy, how were the early days when the concept for ADORA was under development? Yes, it, it really, it's, uh, it's, it's just so wonderful to have these data uh, really after more than 10 years of development. So, you know, we knew once we had asimertinib that we had a better drug, you know, a third generation EGFR TKI, one that was, you know, mutation, uh, mutated receptor specific. Um, there was going to be less uh, side effects of, of rash uh, and diarrhea. It could be given for longer periods of time. And there were also data that it had both uh, cytostatic and cytotoxic effects. So about a decade ago now, I was very excited when a planning group got together, the steering committee consisting of myself, uh, Dr. Yilang Wu from China, Dr. Masahara uh, Suboy from Japan, working closely with other investigators around the world, of course, the team in AstraZeneca. And, and, and really, um, we said, we should bring these drugs earlier. Because if you think about it, we want to cure lung cancer. And I think that's all of our goal. And the best way to do that is to find the earliest disease when there's the least tumor burden, the least resistance. Uh, and we, we thought the surgical setting was a, was a good uh, place for that. But I'll tell you, when we started this, you know, you know, we had to generate enthusiasm. It was a bit slow at first, but uh, very, very nice to see the end result. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, when we reflect back on, on, the design of Adora and, and developing that study with the steering committee. Do you remember how how well was the study received by by co-investigators and you know, what what kind of expectations did you and the steering committee have going in? Well, if you recall, you know, other studies looking at first generation EGFR TKIs did not show a benefit in the adjuvant setting. You know, there had been a trial known as Radiant that had looked at erlotinib in, in this setting and. While there was an improvement in DFS, there was no uh, difference in overall survival. It was also a much more difficult drug to give to patients for longer periods of time. They didn't give it for three years back then. I think they gave it for two or even a little bit less because of, of, the, of the toxicity. So there was no standard of care. And the, the idea was 
If someone has an EGFR mutation, they have early stage lung cancer, stage 1B, 2, or 3, uh, 3A. We know that even after surgery, even after chemotherapy, which has a survival benefit, albeit small, there's such a high chance of metastases and, and recurrence, you know, recurrence to the brain, the liver, and bone. We really wanted to do something, something better. So as we sat around to discuss it, we said, now we have a, a new drug, a better tolerated drug, a drug that has CNS activity. Let's go ahead and design this study. And, um, you know, we, we, you know, we, we powered it for a, a 30% improvement in disease-free survival. Uh, so I, I, in, in, in retrospect, somewhat conservative. But, uh, you know, we knew there'd be an effect. But, but to see the effect that we, we had was, was truly uh, astonishing. And, um, you know, we also, you know, we're, we're very careful to design the trial to include uh, uh, assessment of the brain so that we would have the ability to discuss uh, brain metastases and, and the end result. Um, but, but really, we got together and the trial began. Uh, it accrued reasonably well. You know, adjuvant studies, as you know, uh, take a, a great deal of time. It was a global study. Uh, about two-thirds of the patients were uh, accrued in Asia, as you would expect for a study with EGFR mutations and inhibitors, but a third, you know, in, in the U.S. And, and Europe and other parts of the world. So so a really uh, a really nice study. And, of course, we had the first results almost three years ago um, today. Roy, I have two questions for you. First, as a junior investigator, you just told us that Adora 10, 11 years ago. As a junior investigator, it sounds like so long time ago. How do you keep the stamina in trying, you know, to get this trial to fruition to what it is today when, you know, you started in 2013 trying to develop it? Right. Well, Nargis, I, I was hardly a junior investigator then. I was a, a junior investigator in 1996, and um, I was a fellow at the, uh, the Dana-Farber in Boston. I was working with uh, two doctors, Dr. Emil Tom Fry and Art Skerin, and uh, I decided to work on lung cancer back then. By the way, very few people wanted to work in the field back then. There wasn't a lot of new advances. And, um, you know, I remember them imprinting on me the fact that you know, we can make differences in this disease, especially if we moved our best drugs to the earliest stage of disease. So I was very excited to work in the field. And um, I was then recruited by Juan Kihang to MD Anderson. And when I got to MD Anderson, you know, I, you know, I have studied uh, molecular biology. I have a, a PhD in that area. I was very interested in growth factors. The opportunity presented very early on working with Dr. Hong and Dr. John Mendelson, of course, one of the pioneers in EGFR, of course, he developed some of the EGFR antibodies uh, to get involved in these trials. So by 1997, and uh, as a, a young investigator, I was I was leading some of the earliest trials with a drug called ZD1839, Gefitinib, and then, of course, the uh, uh, OSI774 trials, which were Erlotinib. So that's how I became really excited about these agents. And I remember seeing patients come in and, and have amazing response. It was one out of 10. Of course, this work then led to the discovery of the EGFR mutations, you know, at a number of sites. And, and then it's just sort of gone on from there. And, and you know, it, it's always been my hope, you know, to, to bring these to the most patients in the most uh, productive way. It's quite clear that, you know, uh, you know, early on, we used EGFR inhibitors in all patients, you know, around 2005, 2006, or maybe a little bit later, we realized that they really only worked best in patients who had EGFR mutations. But from there, it was... You know, to telescope these trials now to the earliest stage of disease is really something we, we all wanted to do and very enthusiastic about that because, you know, why do patients die of lung cancer? I was 
I was uh, imprinted by uh, a mentor at MD Anderson, Dr. Josh Isaiah Fiddler, and he would also talk about the metastatic cascade and what it took for a tumor cell to leave uh, the lung and, and to move to the blood and to the brain, the liver and the bone. And if you think about it, you know, this is a disease that's so metastatic, the, the disease we study. You know, even more than 50% of people, you know, after uh, after resection in a stage two lung cancer still will recur. In stage three, more than 70, 80%. So there, there is such a, a metastatic potential for this disease. The idea to, to develop better adjuvant therapies made a lot of sense. So, um, you know, I had tremendous enthusiasm. I was very happy to have been part of the development of these drugs from the earliest stages. So then when the opportunity presented to be part of the leadership of this trial, uh, I jumped right on. And, you know, it's been, oh, well, gosh, if I had a, if I kept track of all the meetings and calls and visits to sites and reviewing data, but, but it's, it's been, it's been so satisfying because we've taken this therapy now to a new indication approved in so many countries. And hopefully even more now that we have new survival data that, of course, we'll present at ASCO in a few months. Thank you for sharing that. I think the common theme is persistence uh, when it comes to this. And Adora changed not only how we treat early stage lung cancer, but how plenary sessions are delivered. In 2020, the world changed quickly. And Adora was presented during the first virtual plenary session at ASCO 2020. The world was a different place. How was preparing for such a big event in your career, knowing that was going to be presented virtually? I still remember listening to your presentation in the couch in my house in Wisconsin and how, you know, it was so surreal to be at ASCO, but being at home at the same time. Right. And I was sitting in my office as I was watching myself give the talk. Uh, so, so basically... It's a very interesting story, actually, because as I said, the, the trial is powered for for a thirty percent improvement. You know, hazard ratio 0.7. and actually, we we were we were waiting for more events before we unblinded the study. We didn't expect the study to be presented until twenty twenty two, two years later. In fact, the recent update that that appeared in the JCO was at the maturity that we actually had had first. Uh, uh, thought that we would present the uh, the first cut of disease-free survival data. And I still remember it was it was right around Good Friday, Passover, right around this week. Three years ago, I got a call from from Yuri, who's the, the lead medical doctor who, who works with the trial at, at AZ. He's been running the trial with us. And uh, he said, you know, we need a call. First thing, you have to see these data. And but basically what happened is there was, uh, you know, trials like this, of course, have a disease uh, a data safety monitoring committee, and the data safety monitoring committee, which had some true uh, senior expert lung cancer uh, physicians, they were mon- doing a routine safety call, and at the time they did that, they noticed a big imbalance between the the two arms of the study. Now, oftentimes that would be a futility; they'd see that the uh, the the control arm was doing better, but here they actually saw that the treatment arm was doing so much better that they felt that they had to call this to the intention of us, the investigators. And after a bit of back and forth, they recommended unblinding the trial two years early because of the results that were initially presented at that ASCO. And that, of course, was a hazard ratio of 0.17, or an 83% improvement in disease-free survival for patients who had their tumor resected. They could have or could have not had adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, you know, more than 60% did. It was equal in both arms. And then, of course, the adjuvant osimertinib. So when those results became available, 
you know, we we looked at it. We all said, "Wow, this is incredible." We we did what we could to to let ASCO know, and I think because it was virtual back then, it was easier to get onto the program, and and of course, um, there was no travel involved. And uh, you know, within a week or two, we 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 had a, a plenary talk uh, at the ASCO meeting. Now that was you know, I've always wanted that. That's you know, for a, a clinical translational investigator, it's a dream to have practice changing data. But of course, there was not going to be a meeting in Chicago. It was going to be filmed. So, of course, you know, the way to do a talk like that, as you know, is to prepare and and we worked with a team. And then uh, as I was doing it, I said, I really need to make sure I, I, I do a good job on this. So what I did, Narcissist, is I, I, I've done a number of programs over the years with a group called Physicians Education Resource, um, uh, uh, PER. And I, I called a friend there and I said, are you using your studio? And they said, no, you know, we, 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 but um, I said, can we use your studio to film uh, this plenary presentation? And, you know, it was very nice of them. They allowed me to use the studio. They were in New Jersey. I remember it uh, as if it was yesterday. I hadn't been in a car, a limousine, you know, in, 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 in months, but I put on my face shield. I put on my mask. I didn't even want to breathe. And I drove about, uh, you know, I had someone drive me because it was early, but I drove about two hours and actually did this in a in a studio with a good uh, good camera and with good lighting. And, um, you know, the nice thing about doing something virtually is you can be nervous, but you can always uh, uh, repeat, you know, if you need to. And that's how we did this plenary. And, um, you know, we prepared the team. We went over, you know, our, our data very carefully. It was still very early, you know, as, as I'm sure you both know. It takes a while to fully, you know, uh, once the trial uh uh, hits to to get all the different data sets, but we had some pretty nice data on the uh, the DFS, and we had a hint on the uh, on the brain metastases data. So that was the plenary three years ago, and uh, uh, it was a surreal experience though, because you know in some ways you know many people saw it because you know they were all uh, sitting in their 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 homes or offices. I remember sitting. I came to my office so that I could handle the questions in the best possible way, and I just started getting texts from people who saw the data. And, you know, I think it immediately had practice changing implications, which is the most important thing to help as many patients as possible, as soon as possible worldwide. Now, the data really hit hard. And I do remember that the, the video was very polished. So I, I didn't know you shot that in the PR studios. It's that's pretty interesting. You know, you're painting a picture, Roy. Uh, this was 2020. So this, you know, we were in the heart of the pandemic. Uh, this was all new territory for us. How did the pandemic impact the study itself? There must have been new challenges that, that you weren't used to uh, sort of running clinical research in this era. Well, you know, the, the, most of the trial was uh, enrolled pretty much before the pandemic. You know, everyone had already had a year of osimertinib at the time we unblinded. So at least we had enrolled the trial during uh, better times. You know, this isn't the easiest study to enroll. You know, you need to have someone who's EGFR mutated. You know, you, you need to, to talk to them, you know, early on. You know, it is a little bit more, you know, it's a placebo uh, trial. So at least the trial was fully enrolled. However, you know, as uh, we've all had to deal with, you know, monitoring trials and gathering data when you can't get monitors into sites, you're doing remote data, you're working with with uh, iPads and, and computers. It was a bit more of a challenge. But also, you know, we, we also were in some ways more focused, right? You know, we were doing a little bit less and and not and not uh, you know going to as many meetings. We had more time to to really focus on, on on certain things. So I think it was a mixed bag. Certainly, some of the auditing was a little bit more difficult. 
But you know, we we you know, I think most sites, I'm sure both your sites, my site, uh, adapted to the the new world of of, uh, of video monitoring of of video visits. You know, the data set was for the most part quite clean. I think if the trial was just starting or or the trial had not fully enrolled, I think that that probably would have slowed it down a little bit more. This does require a multimodality sort of discussion and interaction. Although, you know, I'm, you know, my experience has been that we've, we've we just had our tumor board this morning. More people attended than, than we ever had three years ago. The only issue is most of them were online instead of in person. But I don't know that it matters too much as long as everyone's discussing the case and you're you're seeing the data. So um, we, we, we made it happen and we worked together. And remember, the study team and uh, it's all over the place anyhow. So we've become much more adept to to zoom and and microsoft teams and other methods and of course you know i work with you know investigators in japan china and england so i i've been on the on the zoom all times of day and night and uh it's good it gives you more hours in the day to do other things thank you for sharing all of that i think it's great to have all this information that you know you may not even know about it and i agree with steven that the video looked very good uh, particularly many of us were learning how to shot our own videos at home. Um, something I particularly want to ask is, you know, we saw differences in benefits based on the cancer stage. The benefit for stage three was clear, but for a stage one, there may have been a slow uptake of the data. And of course, spending the data at ASCO uh, in 2023. How do you approach the treatment for EGFR positive, no small cell lung cancer stage one? when the data wasn't fully clear or there may have been some more reservations when it comes we Adora and these patients. Right. Well, you know, keep in mind the staging change. We use the seventh edition changing. Now there's the eighth edition uh, staging. So a four centimeter tumor now becomes stage two. But, you know, clearly we're seeing with, with Adora, I think we're seeing it with the neoadjuvant trials now, that the patients with stage three are the ones who get the most benefit from these therapies, either adjuvant or neoadjuvant. And that was the case in Adora. So the most benefit is clearly in, in, in stage three, whether or not the patient had chemotherapy or not. And, um, you know, you know, most, most would give chemotherapy in stage three, but not all. It's very uh, dependent on physician, uh, patient, uh, the, the region they practice. Stage two, but the hazard ratios, you know, quite strong there. Uh, stage two as well. And even in stage one on the update, all three still have DFS benefit. Now, um, the numbers get small. And, and of course, in, in the stage one, you'll see when you see the survival data, it's, it, you, know, you, know, you know, we're still early for all of the, all the stages. But the overall survival for the trial was positive. And uh, I, I unfortunately can't tell you the data now. I will tell you we were selected for another plenary session at ASCO. So um, I'll be there in person this year. June fourth, uh, presenting the data, and and we 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 can look. Well, we'll show the data by 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 stage. It's my feeling though with the DFS data that are out there right now. I do try to treat stage ones, but it's a discussion. Now there is a an Adura two trial uh, going on now, it's looking at even smaller tumors, the 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 one A's, the the really small small tumors. But I get calls like this all the, all the time. In fact, I had an email today from. A physician in another state asking me about a tumor that was just you know slightly smaller than than a one B would would I treat or not? Um, I think it would re- really depend on a discussion with a patient what their tolerance is for for you know even the mild toxicity that you get 
remember that, you know, when you compare a drug to a placebo, there's clearly going to be some more side effects of the drug, the asimertinib, than than doing nothing. And then, of course, there are some who would say, you know, um, don't don't do chemotherapy there. I think most wouldn't give chemotherapy and just give the EGFR inhibitor. Well, well, that's an area where we don't fully have the data. I tend to treat many stage ones, certainly one Bs, and for things smaller. Um, we usually discuss it. We look at other characteristics of the tumor too that might pretend whether it's more uh, invasive or aggressive or not. Uh, we need better molecular markers though. Perhaps someday ctDNA will help us. Although, you know, my experience with ctDNA is that uh, it's still not sensitive enough to tell us exactly who we should treat or not. Roy, since those are original data were presented, we've had a couple updates, you know, sort of showing different features, uh, different endpoints. Which of those do you think is the most exciting update that's been presented so far? Well, um, I, I think the brain metastases data. I think mm-hmm. the fact that you know, you know, you reduce the you know the, the the new update, the hazard ratio in the primary population, which is stage two and three A. Getting back to your last question, the stage one was uh, was was an added population, but but really the primary endpoint was in stage two and three A. You know, we went the hazard ratio went from 0.7 to. 0.23. So the fact that the, the, the data held with, with um, you know, two more years of maturity, I think that was quite exciting. But I also think it's the brain metastases data. The fact that it's quite clear that, you know, by, by using the drug, there's a clear prevention, you know, uh, of, of, of metastases uh, to the brain. I think that that's a thing that, 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 that stands out for me. And um, certainly, you know, if you talk to patients with this disease, They'll tell you they're all quite concerned about brain and CNS metastases, and uh, there are, there are clearly lower rates of CNS metastases in patients who received osimertinib versus placebo. So I think that that's that's certainly you know you know compelling to me. Yeah, those are really striking data, and you know when I look at the Adora curves, you know the overall population, but when we break it down by stage, I think what strikes me most is just how poorly the control arm does. You know these are these are patients that we we think we've cured. And the relapse rates are so high, especially for stage two, three. Um, when we did see an update with Dr. Tsuboy uh, with a little more follow-up, we see that once we stop taking the osimertinib at year three, the curves come together just a little bit. There's a little banana. They're still very far apart. Uh, but Roy, can you comment a little on, on what you think is the optimal duration of treatment? Is, is it three years? Is it going to be the same for everybody? Right. I've, I've heard this before. I've looked at the control arm. I, I think it's about what you would expect, you know, for EGFR mutated disease. By the way, these patients do quite well with adjuvant chemotherapy. Uh, the, the Canadians showed us that in, in, in some of their trials. Um, and I would agree with you. The, the curves come together a little bit because remember, after three years, the patients stop the drug. And you know, that's the question, you know, in, in all of lung cancer now, how, how much therapy do you do? We have that with immunotherapy now too, right? I, I think that only time will tell. It's my feeling that some patients probably do need more, you know, and there's actually a trial called Target. It's going to be a single arm phase two where patients will get five years of, of therapy. You know, all these trials, by the way, um, you know, blood is taken for ctDNA. And uh, again, as the assays get more and more precise, hopefully we'll be able to follow that and, and really, Stephen, personalize the personalized therapy. Understand who should get more, who should get less, uh, you know, of the drug. And there are probably some patients who, after a year or two, they've probably cleared all the tumor cells and they probably don't need any more. So, you know, that's the one thing, you know, it's it's not as exact as I would like. I don't think, you know, just three years, 
you know, it was it was somewhat arbitrary. I'll admit, you know, we we knew that trials had failed with two years of drug prior, and we knew we could give three years of this drug. But I, I do think that we are probably going to get to uh, probably longer treatment, or at least for some, and shorter for others. We don't want to overtreat. We don't want to undertreat. Uh, we have to be aware of the side effects of these drugs, and of course, costs. So I think research now will try to hone in on this. And you know that's going to be something we all have to work on together, as as and and uh, and bring some of the more you know new molecular modeling uh, techniques in to help us with this. Thank you so much for that input and that extra information. So this is a difficult question, Roy, to ask you. But what are some of the patients that you wouldn't consider good candidates for Adora? Well. You know, right now, you know, Adora just looked at the canonical mutations, exons 19 and 21. And of course, you know, there are others that come forward that don't have those. I think, you know, while they're not the ideal candidate, uh, I think what I normally do in a situation like that is I try to understand what mutation they have. I look into the published literature or some of the online databases. If it's a mutation uh, type where we know that there's response to osimertinib, I, I would be inclined to, to offer them that. Other patients who wouldn't be a candidate, it's hard to find too many. Certainly people who have can't tolerate the drug. You know, I've I've seen that. You know, some people just can't tolerate the drug. You know, we worry about, you know, you know, normally rash and, and GI uh, side effects, fatigue. Uh, there can be interstitial lung disease. It's rare. But 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 it can occur, you know. Certainly, if that happens, that's someone who you would stop the drug. Fortunately, we didn't have any, you know, grade fives on that uh, in the initial report. But we we did have you know a number of patients who had grade uh, two and three, and um, uh, so that those would be people I wouldn't give it to. And um, I would hope that all people could get it because they have resources and they have the ability to get it covered by their medical insurances. That's something that I think the, the plenary data at ASCO this year hopefully will help because any any countries or, or agencies that feel that it's not worth uh, the, the cost will see a, the survival benefit, which, again, I, I wish I could show you the curve right now, but, but it, you know, it, it was, you know, we, we, it was, it was significant and clinically meaningful, which is what we said in the release. And, and, and you'll see that in a few months, but um, hopefully, hopefully as many people will get this as, as possible and um, and this is hopefully the first of a whole new paradigm, right, Nargis? That now, what about the other targets that we, we we know about? There are eight or nine of them, you know, the driver mutations. You know, perhaps this is this is how we'll treat those patients, you know, with with adjuvant therapies, and hopefully trials will be done, and, and other agents will move forward as well. So my my goal would be to get it to the most patients possible. By the way, you can only get it to patients if you know about it. So this this necessitates that you know about the EGFR mutation. You know, early on, you know, if, if not at the time of diagnosis, certainly um, after surgery. So this can be part of the discussion. And I think it's even more relevant now with all the neoadjuvant and perioperative immunotherapy coming online, because it's it's clear that that's a group of patients that should go in this pathway uh, with the EGFR inhibitor rather than immunotherapy. So things are evolving uh, uh, quite quickly. I, I have to say two important things about your comments. First, I think it's very true about the financial toxicity. So we hope the overall survival data will help because osimertinib is very still expensive drug, right? So I I agree with you. And that was going to be my follow question, Roy, but you went and answered it before I even have to ask. So uh, 
I think it's very important that we consider financial toxicity for that. And the second point, you also mentioned it, and it's testing, testing, testing. It really concerns me that some of these patients may go on neoadjuvant immunotherapy, you know, instead of the appropriate therapy in the adjuvant setting. Um, and, and then, you know, testing should be to all patients now. We shouldn't, you know, try to determine based on stage, but for all patients. What have you seen, you know, happening since Adora? Do you think more patients are being tested now at the time of biopsy or they're being tested more in the surgical specimen? Yeah, we're, we're seeing much more than that. And at the very least, you know, besides the diagnosis and the histology, you know, I believe you need to have, based on the approved drugs, uh, I would want to have an EGFR mutation test and uh, at least by a PCR Although, you know, next gen would be great because then you get everything that you need. And, and then, of course, a PDL one We're seeing more and more uptake of this. But, you know, worldwide, you know, it's, you know, there are resource constraints. As you know, there's a big issue with healthcare disparities around the world, certainly in the U.S. I'm, I'm working very closely with the Diversity in Clinical Trials program, uh, the WIN program, you know, where we, you know, we, we discussed some of this at our meeting last year. We, we clearly need to make sure that all groups get access to testing. You can't treat it if you don't know about it. Um, there are survival benefits from this approach. So it is going to be important that, you know, at the first meeting of the patient, whether it be the pulmonologist, the internist, the medical oncologist, the surgeon, you know, someone uh, asks the question, what are the molecular characteristics of this tumor? Certainly in someone who has never smoked or smoked uh, just a little bit. Uh, and, and and know about this because that does open up the possibility of this new treatment route. And then, of course, you know, for these perioperative trials now, which are uh, all the rage, you know, um, with with immunotherapy, that's a group where you 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 almost, you know, I think the data are, are becoming more and more clear with the recent refractory trial with pembrolizumab and EGFR mutant patients that there isn't a lot of activity in EGFR mutation patients for uh, uh, IO drugs. So we want to know about this early as we can. So, you know, may, maybe one of the nice things about having a major uh, presentation time at ASCO, you know, hopefully with, you know, people seeing it and discussing it, uh, is that we will on a worldwide basis, you know, get the message out that lung cancer is lung cancers. It's a needs personalized therapy. We have the agents we got to get them to people and we have to test them so that we identify the best possible candidates. Yeah, very well said, Roy. Um, you know, these, these data are so remarkable. The curve split so widely and it really did change the paradigm. And while there were some that at the beginning were, were waiting for OS, I think people have really come around even before the announcement in March, 2023, that we had positive OS. Really, I think this has become our standard of care. Uh, part of the reason I think that this drug is so effective in the space is it's, as you mentioned, very CNS penetrant. It's highly effective. It's very well tolerated. And so people can take that for, for a very long time. I think those are the types of things I would use to characterize ALK inhibitors and RET inhibitors too. You know, you mentioned we're waiting for some of those data to come out, but in your own practice now, when you see someone with a resected stage 3A ALK fusion positive or RET fusion positive lung cancer, do you consider targeted therapy now? <laughs> that's that's a good question. Um, well, I, I would I would say no. I, I think we we do have to keep you know and but I I do agree with you that you know my experience with red inhibitors and ALK you know they have the same sort of effect as EGFR. You know those are you know driver mutations, addicted tumors, 
So, you know, um, but but the question is going to also be effect versus side effect and how well they're tolerated. And, you know, I don't think we need to do another six, 800 patient trial for each drug. We do need to do some sort of study. You know, maybe move them right to the neoadjuvant setting, right, Stephen, and, uh, and, and, and look at them there. You know, neoadjuvant is so wonderful because then you really get a sense of if the drug is working, we can, we can look at the tumor and understand resistance mechanisms. But, but I would like to see these move forward as quickly as possible. But in my practice, then again, you don't see too many of these. We do tend at Yale to do next-gen sequencing early on. So we, we have the whole panel. You know, my feeling is for almost the same price, you get everything uh, right off the bat. But I have not, you know, off protocol and off label done that. The other issue, of course, is you know, reimbursement until there is an approval. And, you know, there, you know that, that is, of course, significant. But I would predict that someday we'll be uh, having two or three pathways. We'll be having a pathway of patients with driver mutations, and they'll go the pathway of, uh, of surgery, uh, appropriate chemotherapy, and, and the appropriate oral agent. And then, of course, we'll have the rest of the group. And then we're going to have to figure out, you know, uh, chemo immunotherapy, and then, of course, which immunotherapy and how to deal with those that have pathologic or non-pathologic CR or, or residual tumor. It's going to, it's going to really, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm toward, I'm toward the mid to the end of my career, but you, you know, you, Stephen and Nargis, there's so much excitement now and to, to figure this out, you know, we, we see that we've, there's, there, we're really making such progress in, in this disease, you know, and, uh, but, but still there's, there's so much more that can be done and, and, and the science is going to drive us there treating uh, early, treating metastases, it's all at our fingertips. It's so exciting. And now we're touching that we need to talk about Lara. <laughs> um, I think Elsie Martin is coming to all aspects of care. We know that there is limited benefit of immunotherapy in these patients. What are your thoughts about how Lara will also change, potentially change the treatment of patients that go to chemo radiation? another type of early stage or earlier stage of lung cancer compared to stage four. I'll tell you, none of us had better ever miss tumor board. Tumor board has become more vital and, uh, and, and important than ever before because it, we really are in a multimodality era, and that's, that's what's making these inroads in lung cancer, right? So right now, you know, if, if someone is felt not to be a surgical candidate, either because of the location of the tumor, the size of the tumor, perhaps they need a large right pneumonectomy, Perhaps they've got comorbidities. Um, you know, chemo radiation is a is a wonderful approach. In fact, when I started out, you know, in, in the '90s at the at the Dana Farber, that was probably the the best therapy for curing lung cancer, chemo radiation. So now, what you're talking about is in an EGFR mutant patient. You know, some people would give Dervalumab because the Pacific trial did have a, a small subset of patients who were EGFR mutated. Uh, it's very country dependent, by the way, because some places like Europe don't even have it approved. But you make a good point. Why not use an EGFR inhibitor at the LORA trial? And, uh, you know, very similar design trial, uh, randomizing to asimertinib or, or placebo. That trial is that trial is cooking right now. And uh, uh, I don't know when, when we'll hear about it, but certainly I, I would be very positively inclined towards that. You know, again, these are patients who have chemo radiation, but, you know, whatever residual tumor uh, left, you know, should still be EGFR inhibitor sensitive. So, Definitely something to be very excited about in the next uh, in the next months to year as as we wait for the readout of that Laura trial. Roy, we're we're running up on on time. You've been such a pioneer in the field of lung cancer, from targeted therapy to immunotherapy, late stage, early stage. 
You've also really been at the edge of clinical trial design uh, from the, the battle trial to lung map. I wonder if you could just talk about how you've seen the field change and, and is there anything that makes you hopeful for the future? Oh, I, I, I'm so hopeful. You know, when I, when I started in this field, you know, gosh, it's almost 30 years ago, you know, it really, there wasn't much one could offer uh, to patients with this disease. And I, I've seen the field expand and I think you need three things. And we've talked about them today. You know, first of all, we need, we need uh, new agents and new targets. And we have that. We have the, the targeted agents and the immune agents, and, and they're, they're all uh, active. Um, they're active in a certain percentage of patients, but we can clearly do, do more. And then of course, there's bringing all these agents earlier. And that's, that, that really, you know, takes things full circle for me, seeing us identify patients earlier with screening. Again, something we have to do worldwide, nationwide for all, all patients, no matter whether they have insurance or not. That's something we have to work on. But screen patients, find the cancers early, and bring these agents as early as possible. But, you know, we're dealing with resistance, and, and we, you know, the science is going to have to drive the day. So that's where I've gotten very excited about clinical trial design. You know, we have to think about trials that... Uh, you know, obtain tumor that are that are biologically guided, and um, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been involved with a couple of three different uh, types of, of study: the battle trial, which um, you know, with my 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 friends uh, Ignacio Astuba, Jack Lee, uh, Ed Kim, the entire group at, at Anderson, and of course working closely with Wan Ki Hong, our mentor. We started the battle trial oh about eighteen years ago. You know, using a biopsy to assign patients. Uh, to different studies. I think we need to get back to that approach. We need to do battle for immunotherapy now. We have to personalize immunotherapy, understanding why is a tumor sensitive or resistant and give the right group of drugs. Adaptive trial designs. We don't want to randomize patients and give so many patients a placebo or an inactive drug. We want to try to be adaptive, learn as we go. That's something that I've been very much a proponent of, and that was part of the battle. The lung map trial, I just got off a lung map call before doing this. Uh, I was the founding PI and uh, led it for almost a decade. I've just passed that on now. And Haas Borgai is the lead with Karen Redcamp. But that trial has treated more than 4,000 patients. It gets out to the community, gets patients access to clinical trials and drugs, but we're learning. Everyone has a biopsy and we're, we're learning which drug or which combination to, to use. And then the, the newest thing is what we call pragmatic trials, uh, lung pragmatica. So when we find something that looks interesting, we try to design trials, real-world trials that are easy for patients to get onto, don't use up a lot of machinery. We talk about COVID and all the issues with clinical trial machinery at all our institutions. Make trials simple, but ask the questions that will get drugs to patients in the soonest possible time to help them benefit. I think all those ingredients coming together, um, I'm so excited by the community that we have. You know, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm a proud board member of the IASLC. I'm I've just finished, I'm just about to finish my four years. I've been a member since my fellowship at, in Dana-Farber days. It's just so wonderful to, to work as a community. And more and more, I've, I'm seeing that we're coming together and we're collaborating, sharing data. The progress is, is just moving so, so fast, but still never fast enough because there are still many patients, you know, over 2 million a year, you know, in the world, you know, with lung cancer, uh, maybe even more. And we have to find better ways to diagnose early, treat, identify resistance. Perhaps with Adora, we, we are in the early disease setting. We'll continue to follow the years to come. But I, I can't wait to show you in the community uh, these data on June 4th at about uh, 1 p.m. Ooh, I'm so excited. We even have a time. Roy, I feel like 
you know, when you have the trailer for this very important movie, that's where I'm waiting for Adora Asco. Um, this has been a great discussion with your time joining us. No, and uh, thank you. And I just want to say that, you know, the reason we have so much progress is all the collaborators and people working on this and the teams. And I just want to say team science and 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 the community uh, of researchers is just uh, it's just something that, you know, we should cherish. Absolutely. Thanks, Roy. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. You can listen to other episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at our website, IASLC.org under Newsroom. We hope that you'll tune in to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, ISLC.org, and our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.